Our ser sermon lesson is Ephesians 2, 11 through 20, uh, 22. So then remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who were called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace in his flesh. He has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its, com its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death the hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed, peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were, near, uh, who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built, uh, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. The word, the word of the Lord for the people of the God. Great job, great job. That was a beautiful passage. Some of us today remember the hour that we first believed, and some of us don't. For those of us who were raised in the church, it's often hard to imagine what it's like to be outside the people of God. If that's true of you, there's, of course, nothing to be ashamed of. You've been given a great gift, the gift of being part of God's covenant people for as long as you can remember, possibly since you were an infant, as is the case with many of us here. And if the opposite is true, there's no shame in that either. God has come to proclaim peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. No matter who we are, however, we share one thing in common. We were all born separated from God. None of us are born Christians. As Paul says only a few verses before this week's passage, we all come into this world as children of wrath, separated from the life of God and dead in our trespasses and sins. And yet God, because of the great love which with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, raised us and made us alive together with Christ Jesus. And so we're no longer strangers to God, but we're loved by him and part of his chosen people. We've been reconciled to God by the blood of the cross and are now beloved members and children of his family. Now Paul tells us later in, uh, later in this same letter, that this reconciliation isn't just something that God does. We're supposed to do it too. Listen to what he says. Be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
The work of reconciliation that God has accomplished in us isn't supposed to end with our own salvation. We're supposed to take up his mission to draw the world to himself. We're supposed to be both reconciled and reconciling. As Christ died to bring us to God, so we are to die for the world to bring it to God. Now, that's a bold claim, I admit, but Paul says it explicitly. He calls us to imitate Christ's act of dying for us and bringing us to God. But what exactly does that mean? How can we possibly imitate Christ in that? That's what I want us to think about today. There are three aspects of following Christ's example of reconciliation that we'll consider today. First, following Christ means becoming an outsider. Second, following Christ means dying for the outsider. And third, following Christ means bringing the outsider in. Before we think about this, though, we need to ask who the outsider is. Now, the standard Christian answer is that the outsider is a person who isn't a believer, right? A person who hasn't been born again or who doesn't go to church or who goes to the wrong church or whatever it is. Um, But there's more to it than that. The outsider is the person who dresses or talks or smells funny, the person who's bullied by other people, who never gets invited to things, who is never told that they're loved or that anyone cares about them, and who is told that they don't belong, however that might be put. The outsider can be the sick, the chronically depressed, the prisoner, the immigrant, the homeless, the refugee, and anyone else who is told that they're not welcome, that they can't be where we are, that they're unfit to be one of us. Now that's exactly the sort of thing that Jesus detested. Jesus couldn't stand it when people were told that they weren't welcome, especially when they were told that they weren't welcome among the people of God. Take just one example. You all remember the occasion on which Jesus ransacked the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. Now, why was he so upset about this? Recall the words of scripture that he quotes. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. That's what he says. Now, why does he say that it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations? Outside the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, a warning was posted to Gentiles not to come in to certain parts of the temple on pain of death. I think that's what infuriated Jesus. He couldn't tolerate the fact that people who weren't part of the in-group were being excluded from God's presence, that God's own people were telling foreigners to keep out. And that brings us to our first point. Following Jesus means becoming an outsider. This thought can be best explained by considering a few incidents from Jesus' life that illustrate his attitude to those who were seen as outsiders in his day. You'll remember the story of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. According to the purity laws of the Old Testament, bleeding women were seen as unclean, as outsiders. But Jesus heals her and welcomes her. Likewise, the leprous man that Jesus healed was the sort of person that no one wanted to be around. Lepers were required to keep themselves outside the main city. They spent, and indeed they still spend where they, where they exist, the entirety of their lives wasting away in isolation, never hearing a word from a healthy person except stay away. But Jesus didn't tell them to stay out. 
Jesus touched him and healed him. He welcomed the stranger that everyone else told to leave. He opened his arms to the outsider. Now, you'll notice that in all of these stories, Jesus doesn't welcome the outsider initially by making them come to him. He welcomes them by going to them, by becoming one of them. He spent his time with those who everyone else saw as the worst of the worst. Prostitutes, tax collectors, ex-demoniacs, and countless others that no one wanted to be around. For Jesus, proclaiming the kingdom of God to the outsider meant joining them, not trying to get them to come to you. He wasn't trying to get them inside the established church of his time, which was the temple in Jerusalem, of course. Uh, and it likely wouldn't have been particularly welcoming to them, even if they had decided to venture inside. So instead of demanding that the outsider come to the temple, Jesus, in a very real sense, became the temple and brought it to them. Now, what does that mean? Well, the temple was the place where God's presence dwelled. It was where heaven met earth, the place where divine power encountered humankind. And Jesus embodied all that. He is God's temple. He is the place where heaven is united to earth and where God's power becomes available for human beings. And so he searched out the stranger and brought the temple to them. Now, in this week's passage, Paul tells us that we are also the temple. We are God's presence, the divine living in the human. The church, not the building only, but the people, is where heaven kisses earth, where the divine power is manifested for the healing of the world. And we're called to go and bring God's love to the stranger, not just to try to bring them to where we are, but to bring ourselves to them. We're called to go to the poor, the homeless, the prisoner, the refugee, the immigrant, the sick, the dying, the grieving, the depressed, the suicidal, the bullied, and anyone who is forgotten and left out and told that they don't belong. Imitating Jesus doesn't mean simply bringing them to church, at least not initially. It means taking the only thing that really matters in church, God's healing presence, and bringing it to them. It means recognizing that we are God's temple, that we are called to bring others into that temple by bringing the temple to them. So then, following Jesus means becoming an outsider. But becoming an outsider isn't always easy. It costs Jesus his life. And that's our second point. Following Jesus means that we must not only become an outsider, but we must also die for the outsider. That doesn't necessarily mean literal death, although it might, but neither does it mean anything less significant than literal death. Part of what makes literal death so very difficult is that it's a relinquishing of everything that you care about. When we die, we lose hold of what mattered most to us on this earth. Now, dying for the stranger should cost us no less than that. Dying for the stranger means letting go of what we care about in order to bring God's welcoming love to them, relinquishing our hold on whatever it is that would keep us from bearing God's healing reconciliation to those who are aliens to the new life that he's given to us. Now, the fact that this is supposed to be an imitation of Jesus should tell us that it's very likely not going to be especially pleasant. It's going to cost us. 
It's going to mean that we have to go out of our way to talk to that lonely person, or that we have to spend a little less each month so that we can give more away, or that we have to get to know the person who's a little odd and definitely not the type of person that you'd want to hang around, or that we have to make friends with someone who voted for the person we think was the wrong candidate for whatever office, or that we set aside time to go and visit the sick or those in prison. Now, this can be, at the very least, quite difficult and even genuinely painful. But that's because in doing it, we're dying. Dying to the old self that would have seen those people as untouchables. Now, I want to be very clear right now, very clear, that I'm not making light of death in the slightest. Death is a horrible event, and I know that there are many here who have experienced it all too often and all too close to home. I wouldn't for a second treat death with anything less than the deepest seriousness. And that's why I think that we have to recognize that being a Christian, dying to our old natures, is no less serious than physical death. It's painful and often heart-wrenching business following Jesus. How could taking up our cross and following him be any different? The idea of taking up our cross has become something of a Christianism, you might say, uh, that's lost a great deal of its original force. Taking up our cross means following Jesus through the entirety of his passion. And when something loses its original force like that, it's sometimes helpful to substitute something like a synonym or something that has a similar meaning in order to help us grasp what it really means. So what does it mean to follow Jesus through the entirety of his passion? For Jesus, taking up the cross meant sweating blood. It meant being beaten with rods, having a crown of thorns crushed into his head, being flogged until his body was little more than one giant wound, having his hands and feet nailed into a cross, having his side pierced with a spear, and being offered no more than wine and vinegar to drink. And when we put it like that, it's clear that God's work of reconciliation isn't easy. It costs a lot. As Isaac Watts put it in his great hymn, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If we haven't suffered to welcome the stranger, then perhaps we need to reconsider either our definition of welcoming or our definition of stranger. It's easy when the stranger is the sort of person that you'd feel comfortable around anyway, right? And uh, even if the person is a genuine stranger, it's easy to be welcoming when the welcome we give them is just a wave of the hand or a how do you do. But we're not called to that. We're called to give genuine strangers a genuine open-armed welcome. Now, if you want to know what a real open-armed welcome looks like, look at the one who stretched out his arms on the cross to bring all people to himself. And if you want to know what a genuine stranger looks like, Look at those who were closest to Jesus' open arms on that cross, his murderers, the ones that any reasonable person would have hated most in the world. And if you want to know where you need to go in order to provide a genuine welcome to genuine strangers, look at where your Lord was crucified, the place of the skull, outside the city, outside the civilized and decent and clean and safe part of the world, in the darkest, the nastiest, the cruelest, the meanest place of all, the place of death. It is there that Jesus went in order to welcome the world into God's presence. And it is there that we must go 
to imitate him. Welcoming the stranger with God's love demands nothing less because God's love is a love that dies for the beloved, that goes even to the most extreme conditions to draw them close. Now, I want to emphasize that although following Jesus can mean literally going outside the city, although out here we already are outside the city, um, and although it can and does mean going to places that are physically dark and nasty and scary, there's also a spiritual darkness that is at least as powerful as any physical one, and one that we have just as genuine a calling to go to. And I'll mention just one example this morning, but there are plenty of others that are just as serious. Over the past 20 years, as many of you maybe heard, over half of our states have seen a 30% increase in suicides. The casualties include even people who seem from the outside to be the happiest of all. But there's a terrible darkness that's getting a hold of our nation from the inside. A darkness that's costing us the lives of almost 50,000 people every year. Following Jesus means opening our arms to those who are sitting in this darkness. It means fighting against the sources of that evil. Bullying, loneliness, addiction, mental illness, or whatever else it might be. It means standing against, those, or standing against those things and by the side of those who are suffering from them in the name of Jesus, who died to bring hope to the hopeless. We all have friends and loved ones who suffer from these sorts of things, and I'm sure there are many people sitting here who are suffering from them at this very moment. If you're suffering, if you're lonely and feel unwelcomed by others, know that you are welcomed by God. Those outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross are stretched out to you. But I should add that one of the ways that God has provided for us to be healed from those things is professional help in its various forms. So I'm not saying that if you're suffering from depression or some other issue, that can be solved simply by becoming a Christian. Seeking help from the right sources is, of course, critical to overcoming those problems, so please do so. What I am saying, though, is that Christians should be taking the initiative to bring that sort of help, to help people find what they need. That's part of what it means to welcome those who feel that they don't belong, who see themselves as outsiders. Now, I should also say that the point I'm trying to make here has nothing to do with how welcome me and my wife have felt here, because we've been welcomed into this place with open arms, and we've experienced nothing but love and kindness from each and every one of you. Now, I'm sure anyone else who walks through these doors has felt, has felt the exact same way. But outside the walls of these sanctuaries, and sometimes even within them, there's a great deal of loneliness that remains. We're not just called to let the hurting come to us. We're called to imitate Christ, who came to this world to seek and to save what was lost. So let's ask ourselves who God might have placed in our lives to give us a chance to welcome them. To whom can we show the radical, reconciling, death-defying, darkness-dispersing love that Christ has shown to us? Who is the stranger in your life? Or who might feel like a stranger on the inside? How can you show them the same welcome that God gave to us, even when we were lost in our sins? Now that brings us to our third and final point. Following Christ is not only a matter of becoming an outsider and dying for the outsider, it's a matter of also bringing the outsider in. 
Although Jesus went and brought God's healing love to those who were social outcasts, he didn't stop there. Many of them became his loyal followers. After Jesus healed the blind men outside of Jericho, for example, the Gospels tell us that they got up and recovered their sight and followed him. The great hymn writer and co-founder of Methodism, Charles Wesley, described his own experience of salvation this way. He says, My chains fell off, and my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now, Jesus got, brought God's presence to outsiders, and this drew them into the community that God had created to experience his love together. He didn't just meet people where they were at and leave them there. No, he met them where they were and then invited them to partake of the new life that he had given to his followers. And that's sometimes forgotten these days. There's a view that's being spread about that Christian mission is a matter of simply going about and doing life with our community, right? Now, this is an absolutely critical part of our mission, but it can't end there. The church exists for a reason, after all. When we gather together to worship God, he's there in our midst right now, transforming us with his love and reshaping us into the people that we were made to be. We gather together to sing, to hear the word of God, to partake of the Lord's Supper, and to grow together into the temple that he made us to be. If we don't offer this to others, then they miss out on the experience of grace that Christ holds out to the world through the church. There are thus two sides of the Christian mission that have to be balanced in order for us to welcome the stranger. On the one hand, it's utterly insufficient simply to invite them to church. On the other hand, it's just as mistaken to live in community with someone without inviting them to taste of the grace and the life that exists in the church by God's presence. So we have to find a way to affirm both of those things, which is hard. So this week, ask yourself who the stranger is in your life. Who is it that's unwelcomed by you or by others? And if they are unwelcomed by you, start welcoming them. If they're unwelcomed by others, show that you accept them, that they have a friend in you. Think regularly about the fact that you were once a stranger to God's grace, utterly alienated from him and cut off from the life that exists in God's people. Whether you were born in the church or outside of it, the fact that you are now here is a gift of God's mercy. It depends nothing on our own righteousness, which means that the welcome we give to the stranger shouldn't depend at all on how worthy or not they are. Remember that you were once entirely unworthy of God's grace, but now by his saving power, you've been brought near. Any goodness that is now in us is a gift entirely of God. So let's remember the gift that we've received and go and welcome the stranger with God's love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your salvation that you have so freely provided to us. You know that our hearts are so often proud and unwilling to provide others with the same open-armed welcome with which you have greeted us. Come to us and change our hearts, Father. Meet us here today with your grace and remind us of the marvelous gifts of love that you have showered upon us. Give us hearts to go and become outsiders in order to bring the outsider into your presence.